Happy Thanksgiving from Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. So yesterday I spoke with my good friend Molly McHugh, who, as you know, is an expert in Russian influence and information warfare. She's an adjunct professor at Georgetown, and she writes a really great newsletter called greatpower.us. She just got back from a trip to Ukraine where she was delivering the winter gear that you all helped acquire for members of the Ukrainian AFU STRATCOM team. And she talked with some of the people who are fighting for their lives and their freedom. So I wanted to share that call with you and tell you again how thankful I am that this politicology community came together to help make that happen. Well, hello. Molly McHugh. How are you doing? How are you doing? I'm good. (laughs) So you've made it back home, finally, safely. Where are you? I'm, uh, I just arrived uh, up, I'm up near Sun Valley, Idaho, where my family's uh, home is. Um, And I'm standing looking at the edge of the world where it's beautiful and Mm. blue skies and mountains and (laughs) waiting for the elk to come. Can't complain. So you went all the way back to Idaho, skipped over DC on your way back from Eastern Europe. I did this, this round I did because I needed to, it was the only way I could get here in time for Thanksgiving. Yeah. Uh, well, we're, we're talking to everybody on Thanksgiving today and, um, I thought it'd be a really, uh, nice moment to share what we were able to deliver to folks in Ukraine. So we haven't talked to you, I think since you were over there, I'm glad you made it back safely. And maybe you can tell everybody a little bit about your trip. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And once again, just thank you to everybody, especially in the politicology community, who uh, donated to our our fundraising effort for this. Um, uh, I managed to get to Ukraine like four days before it started snowing. So we had a bunch of really happy guys who had coats and boots. And it's it was really funny because, you know, one of the things that we were sort of going back and forth about what the priority thing should be. And, you know, they were like, yeah, well, yeah, if there's like good socks, like we could really use some good winter socks. Like we don't have good socks. And I was like, my dad's really big on socks. No problem. We'll get you lots of socks. <laughs> and um, so I got, you know, some some of these good like American, blend like mostly wool but they're super high-tech fancy socks um and they're like walking on clouds of course and when I was handing off the stuff I sort of gave the guys a sheet of the different things in case they wanted to look at it I was like here's the gear like if you want to look it up and see what the specifications are everything's here and the guy was looking at it and he's like oh yeah okay wool got it and I was really confused why he was making this face and then later he wrote me and he was like okay so I opened the socks and the socks are amazing but I have to admit when you said wool I was thinking of these terrible Soviet army socks we used to get (laughs) they were like scratchy burlap and we used to have to wear these awful socks and so I'm really glad that um that they're not Soviet wool. And I was like, no, no, these are fancy high-tech mountain wool. (laughs) (laughs) So they were, it was the whole, it was all in all like a very, um, I felt really good that we managed to get the stuff there in time. The whole thing was really an adventure and uh, just like everything in Ukraine right now involves (laughs) the willingness to be flexible. But on the way in, you know, I was kind of going to do what everybody else does, which is you go to Poland, you've, get to a train somehow and then you take a train somewhere and hope that it gets there. And, um, I ended up hooking up with some of our friends that we met earlier in the year, uh, who were driving in, uh, some of the vehicles that have been either donated or fundraised for by Ukrainians. Um, they basically drive like a nonstop string of 
trucks, various oh, wow. four-wheel drive vehicles from Poland, from all over Europe. The Estonians have donated thousands of vehicles um, because they basically use them to fill the gaps on all the stuff they don't have for the army. Right. Mm, so, right. you know, where you could use an armor personnel carrier, you'll just use a series of trucks that get blown up and then you'll use a new one. Mm. So, um, a little grim, but so we were driving in these donated trucks and one of them was like a super brand new fancy truck that someone had donated from London and the guy had driven it from there and he met up with us. And the one that we were driving in was this like, 21 year old orange <laughs> thing that needed to be like pull started behind the other truck like every 20 miles it was the funniest and most amazing trip but um uh <laughs> the, the whole you, thing was very entertaining i got pictures i gotta see i have so many truck. pictures so many pictures um and these guys were like a comedy routine together but um one you know one of them was in the volunteer forces um and the other was a member of the territorial defense um, but just sort of, it gave me perspective on this whole effort that, you know, we've talked about a lot on the show, but how like sort of there's this total mobilization happening in Ukraine. So these were this, these like two guys, but so we met in Warsaw, one of the trucks had been driven there from somewhere else. The other one was driven by this guy from London. Um, this was all part of some network that basically, if you're one of the volunteers who has permission to bring the trucks in. Uh, you just sort of, it's like an app, you know, you like get assigned to a thing and you go and pick it up and then some guy has the thing and you get the papers and you take it. Um, and then that's connected to this other network. That's all the donations of other things. So, you know, we picked up when we were in Warsaw, like a bunch of generators, people had raised money to buy, uh, that we were bringing in. Cause obviously power is now uh, a big concern in Ukraine since the Russians are purposefully bombarding, um, sort of power distribution and generation um, infrastructure. So we had a bunch of crap that we picked up. and it, But it's like all of these different networks that are basically all volunteer, all sort of assembled with Ukrainian ingenuity. And it all works like perfectly, just like perfectly streamlined. Everywhere we went, there was somebody who was like, yep, I'll bring it right down. They threw it in the truck, you know. It was really an amazing, uh, an amazing network of things. And... Uh, that's like one piece of 20 million things that are happening right now to get Ukrainians and, this, and not even on the civilian side, just in the military, vehicles, clothing, med kits, uh, you know, all the technology stuff they need, the sort of small drones they use, laptops, tablets, phones, all the stuff they use to fly the drones. Um, it was just it was really humbling to sort of throw my bags in the back of the truck with all the other shit and excuse the language and, uh, and feel like we were a part of this bigger wave of support for Ukraine. And they like, they like feel it and they see it and every small thing that's donated from outside, uh, sort of bolsters their resolve to continue on. So I was glad to be there when I was glad to get there in time for winter. I'm glad to be a, a small figurehead for the amazing goodwill of the listeners in this podcast. Um, in addition to other groups, but mostly you guys. And, um, it was, it was just a really, a really interesting time to be in Ukraine. I think we're at sort of a pivotal moment, um, in the war, obviously this really critical point, uh, in the winter when I think the Russians are trying to sort of smash everybody down uh, i don't think they're reacting the way <laughs> yeah. the, the ukrainians are definitely not reacting the way the russians hoped but um it's gonna be a hard winter and 
Well, there's a lot to come. Can you say a little bit more about that? Because we talked a bit while you were um, while you were there in Kiev. Maybe we should let everyone know where you went because I think you went straight to Kiev this time, right? Yeah. Um, well, we drove in so sort of the northern route uh, to Kiev, but got to see um, a bunch of different things that were happening in that part of the countryside and close to the border with Belarus. Uh, and then sort of came in the route um, that the Russian forces had been uh, trying to invade downward toward Kiev from Belarus at the beginning of the war. So it was really interesting to see. There was still a lot of stuff where you could see where they had bombed and like what they had hit, where they were stuck on the highway. Like kind of a fascinating mini tour. But yeah, so went straight to Kiev and then um, uh, sort of tagged along on some other things and got to go to... Um, Bucha and Irpin and Hostomel. Um, and to, mer- to remind of, everybody, Bucha is the site where? Uh, well, at the beginning, it was sort of one of the first Russian mass civilian casualty episodes. Um, the, around that whole area, uh, the, all, all of these towns are sort of together um, to the north of Kiev. Um, but it's... Uh, uh, the Hostomel airport was this site that the Russians were trying to land special forces at in the first hours of the war, thinking they could sort of use it as a beachhead to uh, drive down quickly toward Kiev and overthrow the government. Um, they got a, a nice surprise, which was a lot of Ukrainian special forces who were there to slaughter them because they had really bad intelligence, which was really good for Ukraine. Um, but there's a whole story about this that I'm going to write up that I got, a gr- I got like great stories from when I was there about how this whole thing happened. But, um, uh, but this whole area where there was this attempted Russian occupation to sort of set up, you know, a site to drive down toward the capital. Um, oh, there were a lot of forces that came in various ways. Um, uh, they just sort of started setting up, uh, near crossroads, uh, shooting indiscriminately into civilian vehicles that were trying to drive out of the way. Um, so lots of civilian casualties in those early days. Um, lots of volunteer efforts to sort of recover bodies, identify bodies, bury people. Uh, nothing not extremely grim about the entire yeah. thing. Lots um, of brutality. It was... Um, and just, you know, the pointless, the absolutely completely pointless destruction of things, uh, houses, stores, gas stations, um, just wrecking people's lives. Um, because they could, like, why not? We're here. Why not destroy things? Um, in a way that I think, you know, even all these months later, when some of it's been reconstructed, uh, not everything, obviously there's a lot of, uh, reconstruction, especially of things like private homes that will have to happen after the war ends when there's more resources and time. Um, but just sort of seeing just the totally indiscriminate nature of this, none of it was targeted at military targets. <laughs> you know, none of it was targeting government stuff. It was just like, oh, here's some Ukrainians. We will kill them. And it, I mean, there's just no way to, to not see it in front of you and think, wow, this is really stupid and pointless. I mean, just it's, there's just no military thinking behind it in any way, shape or form, um, except attempting to inflict terror, which generally doesn't work out the way you think. But um, in this case, it's created an awful lot of Ukrainians who uh, have a lot of will to fight where they weren't really so sure before if they would be the ones to do that. Um, Really interesting trip. 
lots of new stories to tell. That that will is exactly what you know we've discussed. Putin is trying to erode with the destruction of infrastructure, like in Kiev, and um, the the question of whether or not there was going to be running water and electricity was, I think, up in the air when you were going. And um, do you want to talk a little bit about the morale uh, and the yeah. effect on morale that that's having now? What that was like. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny because, yes, I was warned by everyone, oh, you're coming in, bring like everything you might need, be prepared to be cold, be prepared for the dark. You know, I got lucky um, with where I was staying and sort of the connections that I had uh, that, you know, if I, if I had needed anything, I would have been fine. Uh, and I was in a relatively stable environment uh, in terms of where I was staying. So it was fine. But um, I think for the city at large, um, they're sort of operating on, uh, or were then, now it's changed further, but were then operating on kind of semi-scheduled rolling blackouts. So people sort of knew you had windows of power at different times. You were kind of adjusting to those schedules, um, which is hard enough. But uh, I think that one of the things that was most notable is like, you know, there's so many people, uh, so many Ukrainians who have stayed either stayed in Ukraine or came back after the sort of first months or so when they were pretty sure they would be all right. Um, when they thought that there could be that they could do the work they needed to do there. Um, but all these people who are organizing these volunteer efforts, who are doing different things to support the war from the civilian side, um, want to be there. And they're like, you know, really having a long conversation with themselves about whether they should leave for the winter to take pressure off the resources for the country if they can, um, or if they should stay because they all want to be there. You know, they feel like they need to be there until the end of this war, like that's their duty. And I think listening to people talk about stuff like that and understanding the decisions they're making and how that feels for them was really emotional. I mean, just like, I mean, you see it and you can understand what they're trying to weigh, but they just want to be there. Like they've stayed since the beginning. They want to stay until the end. They can see the end. They know it's not quick, but like they know they're going to get there. Um, And just this literally tremendous will of the country. And nowhere do I see that eroding. Like there's nobody complaining. There's nobody unhappy. People are making practical decisions, you know, if I can leave, should I leave? You know, should we take the kids out? Is there some place we can take grandma? You know, it, are there people who can get out of the way, um, who cannot practically do something in the war right now? Like people are having very realistic conversations about this that are not panic driven, that are not fear driven. It's really about understanding the role of civilians in war, how to manage resources, like Ukrainians have become sort of smart and, um, you know, extremely efficient in how they're having these conversations. So it was really interesting to see kind of what's happening because I think we are <clears throat> at this critical pivot point right before the winter with these new waves of Russian attacks, which started the day before I left. Um, but heavy bombing again of civilian infrastructure, sort of semi indiscriminately, but also very much targeted toward. Uh, toward power and, and other critical infrastructure. Um, I think there really is this attempt, the, uh, this Russian sort of final Russian attempt to try to make it unbearable. And it's not just about, of course, changing Ukrainian will. I think there's at least some awareness on the Russian side that this is going to be a failed effort at this point. But uh, 
I think Europe's the perspective of many European officials at the moment is that Europe is full, you know, like well, it's pretty saturated with Ukrainians from the first wave. I would like to point out that, you know, these are pretty high bar refugees. Um, almost every Ukrainian uh, that I've talked to in terms of them, their families, their friends, people who have left, people who have resettled, um, you know, almost everybody's working. It's not like people are mooching off some system. Ukrainians get bored. Like they're, they're doing what they can in a whole variety of ways, wherever they are. Uh, they've integrated into a lot of countries very easily in terms of being able to find jobs and do things. Um, so I think, but this attempt to create another wave of weaponized migration um, of Ukrainians who may need to leave for the winter um, uh, is part of, of the Russian calculus, right? Like, it'll make Europe pressure Ukraine to stop fighting. It's winter. Let's have some talks. Let's buy some time for Russia to regroup. Um, the normal negotiations crap that they do. Um, so I think that is, you sort of see all these pieces linked together, almost all of it. And we've talked about this at various stages through the war. There's the piece about Ukraine, but there's the much bigger piece that's about, um, about changing our our mindset so that we pressure Ukraine to do what the Russians want them to do. And I think there's good awareness of that now. I think there is, I think there is a good awareness that the political will here in the U S has to remain strong. Yeah. Um, for exactly for exactly the reason that you're articulating, which is that Putin wants it not to, right? The, yeah. the, 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 the inf- that that is that is why we talk about the information layer of this war being so significant. Exactly, and I think especially in Europe, that piece is so critical. Uh, you know, we're a little farther away; we have the luxury of not thinking about this all the time. Um, but there's in Europe, there's economic aspects, energy aspects, uh, social aspects, cultural aspects that are all sort of being pressed on. Um, and, but I think the, the critical aspect in Europe is that popular support for Ukraine, it's still public pressure that is keeping uh, any government from sort of moving too far from the line, which is, um, which is good. Uh, and I, but I think it's, uh, the, the outpouring of support is important. I think the critical thing right now is, um, you know, it's hard to say aid is nice, generators are nice, but you know, what we need is some really big missiles to shoot at the Russians, but that's essentially the ask, right? Is we need the stuff to finish the war. You can see the point we're getting to, which is going to be, I think everybody's assumption is that the Ukrainians will sort of pull up to the fortified lines outside Crimea at some point, and you can make your own timeline. Uh, But I think most people expect that to happen before January. Uh, and then it's like, well, then what? And it's like, there's no then what? Like, we know what the then what is. Number one, there's more than one way to get to Crimea in that it's a peninsula, right? <laughs> like, there's, there's this thing called air. There's this thing called sea. Like, there's not just the one land entrance to Crimea. So this, like, again, the sort of limited strategic thinking on, so then what happens? Like, there's not going to be guys at a line in, of trenches shooting at each other. Uh, if they're doing it right, <laughs> if we give them what they need and we know what they need, which is longer range missiles, which is a whole variety of drones, uh, including armed drones, which is a whole bunch of other stuff they've asked for, that we're still doing this ridiculous dance of, oh, but what if they hit Russia and escalate the war further? Like, escalate the war further for who? I mean, it's not like it can get worse for Ukraine. So, um, 
I just think this piece needs to get, like, we just need to get this done, right? Like, it needs to get done. So the, the, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about is um, that you were, you were there in country uh, and we were, we were trading frantic DMs. I was trading frantic DMs with, with you, checking on you when the news uh, about the missile um, hitting in Poland broke. And then everybody sort of lit their hair on fire and was freaking out about likely nuclear war. And then we talked about this on the show a couple of weeks ago using Ann Applebaum's recent writing in The Atlantic, one, one about fear of nuclear war having warped the West strategy uh, around Ukraine. And I wonder if you can sort of share what that was like going as it was going down. And then as you've reflected back on it now, what we know, which is obviously that what really caused the missile explosion was, was the direct consequence of Russian aggression. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is the, I mean, the key takeaway is obviously if Russia hadn't decided to shoot like a hundred missiles at Ukraine that day, nobody would have been shooting air defense, right? Yeah. There's still a lot Which is of not an exaggeration. That was actually like, it was a hundred missiles. It was, a, it was, it was like a weird 70 day. missiles and a bunch of drones. Yeah, it was... It was a, it was a, it was a heavy day. Yeah. And it was the first day in a long time they'd done the nationwide strikes. It wasn't just on Kiev. It wasn't just on the front lines. It was like all sorts of places all over the country, including stuff close to the border of NATO. Um, and really that's kind of the question is like what you guys shooting at the border of NATO for anyway. But, um, I think there's still a lot of unclarity about this event and there's a lot of questions that, this this sort there were like a, a missile or two that that uh struck uh, a few kilometers inside the polish border um there's still a lot of questions about this entire event uh in terms of what came from where and hit what for who and uh there was obviously some attempts to create uh, a lot of information pressure around this uh event there have been Russian attempts since the beginning of the war to try to create um, space between Poland and Ukraine. And while that has not been successful on any real strategic or tactical level, uh, again, the Poles are highly aware that the Russians are trying to do this. Um, uh, you know, it had all these things have public impact too. And, um, you know, we were driving out of, uh, when we got back to, to Poland on the train, we we're sort of driving to Warsaw, um, and listening to Polish radio. And you, this was like all the only thing they were talking about was like, uh, this missile strike and what was it and how do we understand it and what's going on. And I think, um, I mean, we need to be prepared for more events like this. I think the good thing about the situation in Poland is while there was that, like, 18 hours of kind of what the hell just happened. Oh God, do we actually have to do anything about it coming from NATO? Um, it actually worked pretty well in terms of figuring out a process, engaging the Ukrainians in that process, um, and tamping down the sort of the public churn, um, which is a good sign, I think, for if there is another event where there is a question about what the hell just happened and did something just happen to NATO. So the process held up better than I think people were expecting. So there's that. Um, but it's not, I mean, there's nothing good about Russia shooting all this shit everywhere. Eventually there will be something terrible that happens as a result to someone other than Ukraine, right? And um, I think that's... Uh, inevitable if they continue this kind of escalation. I think the, the thing that's so weird right now, and not, you know, weird is not the right word, but the thing that's so slippery to look at is 
everything Russia is doing is pushing for escalation. And we're over here, we NATO are over here doing our typical, like, ah, anything but escalation. Like, here's some candy. Here's a box of, of, of socks. Like, please don't escalate. And, um, like, it just, I think the, we still have this mindset challenge of how we are looking at this and what is ahead that we need to wrap our heads around. Um, I think the nuclear back and forth was a bit of a, a good, a good test in that, um, you know, it kind of, it got shut down pretty quick, relatively speaking, especially when the Chinese were like, yes, this would be a terrible idea. (laughs) You should not use nuclear anything, you know? Um, so I think that was oddly one positive thing, actually from China, but, um, uh, it's going to be this period of Russia trying to create distance between NATO and Ukraine, Russia trying to create distance between different allies, um, trying to create mess that will hamper the process of the smooth flow of munitions and weapon systems into Ukraine. But, um, you know, we're not on coastal mode or coasting mode yet, right? Like we need to seriously step up what we're doing for Ukraine because the best thing in terms of how do we get to the end of the war with less casualties, with less dead Russians, with less dead Ukrainians, um, is to end it faster um, and with more significant capabilities than people bashing at each other from close range. Um, and uh, I looked at, at that a bit in a piece that uh, I posted today on my newsletter, greatpower.us, um, as sort of a little pre-Thanksgiving thanks, I guess, but it's a longer context about um, Georgia and Ukraine and these years where there has been all of this churn in these countries, but also looking very specifically at this question of how do we consider what we're giving to Ukraine and understanding when we don't give them something, um, when we don't give them a capability that they have asked for, they are still doing the same thing strategically that they would do with, uh, with it. But without it, they just make up that gap with lives. Um, And we know that. So when we say we're not giving you longer range missiles, we understand that what they're going to do is do it with more dead people. Um, And I think we need to be very clear eyed about how we're looking at this. I was in this very interesting discussion this week um, once I left Ukraine um, where there was a lot of really soul-searching thought about the question of what is deterrence. And this was primarily among NATO nations, uh, obviously, that this discussion was happening. And this sort of question that I threw into the piece that I wrote very lightly of our deterrence succeeded this time in NATO's perspective, right? Which is Russia didn't do anything to NATO. Um, But the cost of that, of the success of our deterrence has been that Ukraine is outside the wire. And I think more people are aware of this, more people are aware of the real cost that Ukraine is bearing uh, to chew through the Russian military with, you know, way less supplies and costs than we would take to do it. Um, But the cost to Ukraine is really significant. And I think we need to be aware of that in how we are approaching uh, what comes now, what comes next and what comes after. Uh, And those things are not necessarily 
uh, in quick or easy sequence, but um, we owe Ukraine a lot and we owe them that now and we owe them that in a couple months and we owe them that when this is over. Um, and I think we need to wrap our heads around that sooner rather than later. And I think, you know, there's this real uh, reckoning that we, the Western Alliance, uh, now have to have with ourselves. And it's because of Ukraine, because it was easy for us to sort of ignore the smaller countries when it was Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania, even Poland to some extent. It was easy for us to just sort of say, you know, eh, you know, these Eastern flank countries, like whatever. Um, but, and sort of continue what we had done before, which was essentially, you know, Washington talks to Moscow and occasionally to Berlin, but all the stuff in between is not really considered to be equal to the other members of the alliance in real terms. Uh, this ends now. I think Ukraine is really a reckoning of that. Uh, if we're serious about um, finishing the political questions that we attempted to answer after World War II, um, that comes with having a fully equal alliance uh, with Ukraine in. Um, and I think this will take a lot of deep soul searching uh, amongst ourselves um, and, and with the Ukrainians. Um, but I think they have created so much opportunity for what comes after this that if we squander it, we really should be kicking ourselves into the next era, which we will not be defining. It will right. be someone else. Right. So um, it was a really deep trip. And as you know, from the, <laughs> the trip we took together, uh, there's a lot of like strange time when you're moving around or sitting on the train or whatever, where you're thinking through all these things. And this time I couldn't even stare longingly out the train windows at night uh, because uh, they have the like, you know, metal shutters down to hide the trains from whatever. It's very like old school, but it was a really interesting trip. And um, I'm glad that I uh, got to go with something uh, of purpose for the Ukrainians and not just for my own uh, self-gratification as it were. But um, there's a lot ahead. Um, but these people are so fucking amazing <laughs> like yeah. i just every yeah. single person you talk to yeah. is making hard choices and finding impressive ways to solve problems and not even thinking about it as anything incredible it's just what they need to do the finding impressive ways to solve problems out of necessity is just really it's really remarkable these people you see it are so innovative yeah yeah. <laughs> like, yeah in really incredible ways and um you know, uh, one of the guys wow. that uh, that we met while we were there, our first night in Lviv, um, was actually here in D.C. while you were over there. And we I caught up with him and we had uh, beers and dinner and they were talking about just how, how much their operation, and this was an operation to run uh, information uh, into Russia to try and get accurate information into the Russian people, which is a, an extremely difficult thing to do, and just how how successful they have been since then and how they are, they've become now integrated with, um, with the official uh, military apparatus there. And he's here raising private funds to help do more of that. Uh, it, it just, it really is. It's, it's remarkable to watch. Yep. Yeah. So many different things going on yeah. on every level. It's like impossible to catalog it all, honestly. And um, I just, and so, 
overwhelmed by these people. And, you know, on this trip, I tried to make an effort to uh, reconnect with, I think I've told you this before, Ron, and some of it is in the, the, the piece that I wrote a bit. Yeah, I can't wait but to finish that. There's all these Georgians who, you know, when there was the political change in Georgia in 2013, um, well, between 2012 and 2013, but, it, you know, it was around the time of Maidan, when Maidan was starting, and many Georgians who had to leave Georgia because of this awful political transition, uh, but these incredible Georgians who had spent a decade rebuilding their country sort of ended up in Ukraine because they wanted to be able to use their skills. Many of them are still there. They're doing absolutely incredible work, but being able to catch up with a lot of these people who have this like super unique insider outsider perspective, right? They're almost like more Ukrainian than some Ukrainians because they already lost one country and they're like, we are not losing another country. Like we will do anything to save this place. Um, it was a really, I mean, just there's so many different things supporting Ukraine. So many people from different countries, so many aid efforts, so many volunteer efforts, like this all has to be for something and it can't just be to put things back the way that it was. So we need to carry this to the end um, and we need to do it faster rather than not. <sighs> Molly, it's so good to talk to you. Uh, good I can't to talk wait, to can't, you too. I can't wait to see you uh, when you get back in DC. We'll catch up Hopefully properly. Soon. Hopefully soon. Um, but until then, politicology folks, um, I, I want to say thank you to you for uh, for helping us raise raise money so that Molly could to, could take this gear over to Ukraine and um, maybe we can post some pictures somewhere or something so that people can see. Yeah. Yeah. I'll try yeah. to put some stuff that'd be, together. That'd be cool. Um, and uh, for the, especially for the peeps who donated, yeah. um, this was a really, I think a really big deal. Um, but I think really, I'm so grateful here on this Thanksgiving week to this community for being so mobilized to want to do something really meaningful. Here's my dad screaming in the background. But, um, <laughs> I should let you go and tell your dad happy Thanksgiving. And, I will. I will. Thanks. Uh, yeah. Thanks to Politicology. I really appreciate all of you. I really do. Thanks, Molly. See you soon. Bye.